Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. We're in this series in Romans. If you're tuning in and you're, if you're just jumping in, in the middle of this, you haven't been here, let me just reset this because all these messages can stand on their own. They work a little bit together, but better together, but... Um, but we're in church. The Bible talks about sin a lot. These next few chapters are talking um, specifically about how we deal with sin. I think everybody like around us, everyone everywhere believes in sin, even if they call it something different. You know, everybody believes in right and wrong. Now, honestly, in so many ways in our culture, we're hyper-focused on what's right and right, what's wrong and who's right and who's wrong. And, um, you know, and so we, we're obsessed with justice. We watch shows where we want the bad guy to get caught and to get what they deserve, even if we disagree with what bad means or if bad even exists. You know, so all of us are that, and we, we feel like we're moving in a better direction from something worse to something better. We all get this, whether or not we call it sin. The Bible calls it sin, and sin in the Bible, and Ken talked about this a bit last week, is violating God's law, God's desires, his intent, his wishes. And so biblically, um, our understanding is that God created everything and was before everything, will be after everything, and he is the standard of good. And so it's not conforming to that standard. We're made in his image, and he's told us how to live, and so not conforming to the standard of what he told us uh, would be sin. The, the Bible adds this relational dynamic right at the beginning where he's got Adam and Eve in a garden and says, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, good and evil. And, um, and they eat from it. Um, and in, in that, what they do is fail to trust God, um, fail to, to believe what God says. And so there's a relational aspect to that. And if you're not going to believe God for what he says is good, you're going to believe something else, like yourself in some way or what's around you. And ultimately, we end up replacing God with something else to be the source of good and bad, but really the source of life for us. And so that's, you know, the problem is looking for life in something other than God and not as God gives us things that are gifts from him through which he gives us life, but not as a source, not God as the source of those things, but those things as a replacement of God. So that's sin. How many of you sin? Okay, good. Uh, how many of you have sins that you're struggling with that you'd like, to, like, you'd like to stop sinning, like doing something or saying something or thinking something? You just got something like, man, it just weighs you down. How many of you have sins that you kind of hope God doesn't notice and say much about because you really like them and you don't think they're that big of a deal? How many of you have that? You're in church, so that would be another sin to lie about this. Right. Um, so we are, we are, like, we're works in progress, you know? Many, many of us, most of us in this room, I think, have, have received the gift of salvation, of what Christ has done for us. But we still, like, even if you've accepted what Christ has done for you, you still have these sins you're trying to figure out how to deal with. And that's where Paul starts to go in Romans. So in one commentary, um, I read this, that chapter, I, this was helpful for me. Like, chapters 1 through 5 explain what God has accomplished for us in the gospel. So past tense has accomplished, he's accomplished it for us, and he's done it in the gospel. And now in these next three chapters, six through eight, he's going to talk about what he will accomplish or he is accomplishing in us through the gospel. And so we've been talking about what Christ has done for us, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we needed Jesus to pay the penalty for that. And so he has done that, but now he is doing something in us. And, and it's, it revolves around like what's going on 
um, with our sins. So this, the whole chapter, and these are two messages revolve around these two questions um, that Paul says people are asking, or he asks in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then in 6.15, this will be next week's message, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Now, on the one hand, like these two questions make sense because you've agreed with God that your sin is a problem you cannot fix. You've received the gift of the gospel. You've repented of your sins. And you have the promise that he is now conforming you to the image of Christ. Um, but in the meantime, you still feel quite a bit like yourself. And so like, it makes sense that we ask these questions because what do we do? Because sin is still wreaking havoc in our lives. On the other hand, I bet none of you this week laid in bed at night at 4.30 in the morning asking, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, like these are not questions that we really ask. They seem like questions someone asks. I've tried to figure out why anybody asks these questions. And one of them, the first one I'll get to in just a second coming out of the message from last week. But like, I thought either someone wants to keep on sinning and they're looking for a loophole. You know, like maybe we can keep sinning because grace will abound. Maybe that's it. Um, or like you don't want to keep sinning and you feel badly about it and you want to stop feeling badly so there's some aspect of justification. Or it could be that Paul has like said, we're under grace and not under law and you think that's a bad idea. And I can remember this from being a new Christian. Like if I don't have law, I'm just going to do all sorts of bad stuff. <laughs> like without law, like grace, is grace really going to be able to do the job? And so they're looking for a way to like Put the law back over us again. In, in any of those cases, I think what Paul's saying is you do not understand the depth of what I'm saying to you. Like, and the underlying issue seems to be this, like, okay, we've Christ, we know Christ has done this for us, but we're still like dealing with sin. And so how does sin and grace and the law and the gospel relate? And, and why is living a holy life, like the life we're called to, so confusing um, for us? And what he's going to do is... You say is like this that our present experience with sin, with like holiness, with living the life we're supposed to, with who we were before Christ died and, and who we are in Christ, our our experience with that is gray. But the underlying reality is black and white, cut and dried, crystal clear. But our experience is still gonna be gray. And so he's gonna deal with the black and white. Here's what happened. You may not get this, but here's what happened. And then he's going to deal a little bit with the experience that's still gray. So this first question, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin, black and white, dead or alive? You are dead to sin if you were in Christ. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he adds, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So this question, um, should I keep sinning that grace may abound? Ken gave a great sermon uh, last week on the passage that kind of leads into this. Um, Ken told you if you were here that it was the he read in some commentaries this is the hardest passage in the whole bible and jeff made me preach it to which i say ken quit being so whiny okay no i'm just kidding that was a really hard passage and as ken and i were talking about i didn't tell him this i was like maybe i did i'm really glad ken's preaching this passage because 
And, and I think it was a passage made for Ken because it's technical and he picked it apart really, really well. But, so the, but the passage was about why death reigns um, because of, and death reigns because of sin and sin reigns because of Adam and we're all experiencing death because of what Adam did and how that doesn't seem fair. But we all sin anyway, so maybe we get it. And, but then Paul gives some great news that, yeah, death reigned through Adam and his sin but much what Christ did is going to reign much more, and it's going to be much better than that was bad. And he used the analogy of, like, if you went in the preschool room, and they have those little cardboard blocks, which are pretty awesome, and, and the kids will build them up. And you just went in and knocked them down. Kids are crying everywhere. Like, that's easy to do, to knock stuff down. But it's like Jesus came and built the Lego Death Star in, like, five minutes. You know? Like, what he does is much more impressive than what Adam did. Although it couldn't be a Death Star, because it leads to life. But it is what it is. And, and so... He got to the end of that passage, and it says the law came in to increase the trespass, which doesn't make sense, but like he just wanted us to know how bad the problem was. But where sin increased, grace abounded. Like grace went nuts. Sin can, sin can increase, but grace is going to increase all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin reigned, it ruled, it was in charge in death, but grace even more is now going to reign and rule and be in charge through Christ. That's unbelievable news. But then, that, then the question that someone asked is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? And so mathematically, you can kind of see this, and this sounds like the type of question an accountant or an engineer, possibly a teenager would ask, you know? Like, no, no, not cracking on teenagers. I'm thinking about teenage Jeff and the teenage Jeff that's still left in adult Jeff might ask this question of like, okay, I've been doing some computations, and if sin is going to increase at this rate, but grace will abound and it will increase at this rate, then if we keep going out here, then it, if we want more grace, then we have to get more sin so that grace will abound, so we should do that. Now, that would be, seem like a really stupid question and missing the point, um, but, and I'm not actually convinced that anybody asked it, but Paul maybe just said it because he wants to say what he says next, you know? But that's the logic behind the question. And Paul is like, no, that's a stupid question. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it, right? Looks gray to us, but it's black and white to God. Um, and so his answer is it's impossible to continue in sin because you have died to sin in Christ. You have died to sin in Christ. If you've received the gift of Christ's life and death and resurrection, then in that you've died to sin. And if you've died to sin, you cannot continue sinning. To which, you know, we're probably all thinking, well, I am seem pretty good at it, you know. <laughs> uh, I am continuing to sin, even if I'm not continuing in sin. And the word continue is a pretty important word because it, it doesn't mean like just to sin, but it means like to remain in uh, it means habitual persistence, like it was used of purposefully living in a certain place and making it your permanent residence, like continuing to move in that direction. Um, so intentional, willful sinning is an established pattern of life. It doesn't mean you can't sin. It means that this is not the direction you're going in and the habit and how you've established in your life. And Paul is saying that before Christ, you couldn't help but continue to sin. It was the direction you were going in. It was the place that you lived. But now that you're in Christ, it can't, you can't continue in sin. That's not possible. And so he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death with him. This is, and this is like there's a depth to this um, where we know that Christ has died for us, but the whole idea of dying with him is another level of it. So um, I started thinking about it this way. When you 
commit a crime, you're not free until you do the time. That's right. I don't know where that's from, but that's the truth. And so um, you may be free physically, but you're not free emotionally, relationally, spiritually in a lot of cases. So think of something stupid that you've done, you know, that you felt bad about doing. Did anybody got anything stupid they've done that they felt bad about doing? You want to share it? Okay, that's fine. It's fine. You don't have to share it. You can text it to me, anonymous. I'll, I'll say it anonymous. And then maybe think about something not so stupid that you've done that maybe you still feel bad about or maybe people don't know about. You know what I mean? Like that type of thing. When I thought about the stupid thing that I've done, this is what came to mind, and Jesus brought it to mind, so I'm going to talk about it. And so when I was like probably 8, 9, 10, something like this, and um, uh, I have a viv- fairly vivid memory that nobody in my family really remembers or brings up of my, a babysitter helping my sister and I get an anniversary cake for my parents one year for their anniversary. And so I don't know if that happened because my kids have never gotten me an anniversary cake. And there's not a big market for anniversary cakes. You know what I mean? Like, it's just not really a thing. But this is what I remember. And I remember we got the cake a little early. And so the day before their anniversary, I was looking at that cake thinking, Man, that is a good-looking cake. And that frosting looks really good. And so I took a little bit of frosting, like, just off the back of the cake where nobody would notice. But it was a round cake, so that doesn't really work. But So I took a little frosting off it, and it was good frosting, but I kind of smoothed it over so nobody would notice. But then I was like, oh, man, I need some more of that frosting. And so I took another one and smoothed it over. And then I just went a little crazy and took a lot of frosting off the back of the cake. And there's a big patch of cake where there's no frosting. I'm like, this is not going to work. The cake had a lot of frosting flowers on it. What I ended up doing was taking all the frosting off of the cake except for the frosting flowers, thinking maybe people will think that this is like a new style of cake frosting where you're trying to reduce the total amount of frosting by just having frosting flowers and not having frosting on the cake. It became evident when it was cake time and their anniversary that something had happened to this cake that was not good. In hindsight, I should have just eaten the whole cake and said, cake? What cake? I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't seen any cake. And like gone outside and puked because I just ate a whole cake, you know? Um, I feel bad about that. There's no one to forgive me because no one remembers that it actually happened. Uh, But I'm sure we resolved at the time. I have not feel weighted down by eating the frosting and that cake for the rest of my life. But you do. I did at the time. I felt really, really, that's why I remember it all these years later. I felt really, really bad about it, you know? Now think about some not dumb thing that you've done wrong that really had an impact on someone, um, you know, that maybe you haven't resolved. Like, you haven't done the time, and you don't necessarily feel free from that. Like, and it's not, it's just affecting you in some way that you're not, you don't even know how it's affecting you, you know. And when you, when you pay the, when the penalty gets paid, when you're forgiven, when there's reconciliation, um, then there's, then there's some freedom if you're forgiven. But when you're forgiven, it's like the pain gets spread out. Sin has consequences, and so the person that forgives you absorbs that pain. But then it's at least resolved, and there's, there's a degree of freedom from that. Um, obviously, what I'm getting as Christ has freed us from all this, but, like, but we know how this works relationally. Like, if you robbed a bank, um, but, you know, you'd be not free, but then if you spent your 10 years in jail, then you would be free. You know what I mean? And you've done the time, so it's not like, you did it, but like you're free from it because you, you did the time. I read this story. This is what happens when you give me a couple weeks out of the pulpit. I read this story a few weeks ago. I don't know if anybody saw this about the kid in Nebraska that like, I think it was in the 50s. It's probably about right. He, um, he's 16, wants to go on a date with this girl. His parents say no, so he kills him. Has anybody seen this story? And so he, uh, 
he kills him and goes on the date and comes home, buries his parents in the backyard. After about two weeks, everyone's like, hey, what happened to your parents? He's like, parents? What parents? I don't know any parents. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they find his parents in the backyard, throw him in jail. He escapes, moves to Chicago, changes his name, moves to L.A., gets married, has a family, gets divorced, moves to Australia, has another family, has some kids, dies. His son in Australia, all he knows about his dad is he was an orphan from Chicago. And so he gets on like the 23andMe gene thing to try and find out more about his dad. And it pops up on a cop in Nebraska working on this cold case of whatever happened to this kid that killed his parents and escaped from jail. So he ends up calling this dude in Australia and saying, I mean, so technically your dad was an orphan in Chicago, but it was by choice. <laughs> like, uh, that guy was never free, right? He lived his whole life, like, not free from his sin. And that warped him spiritually and emotionally and relationally and is still having consequences after he died as this guy finds out about it. Paul is saying, Jesus died for us. We were buried with him in baptism. We are free. We're free. Like if you commit a crime that leads to, that has a death sentence, you're not free until you're dead and then you're not free because you're dead. And sin, this is what he says, sin leads to death. I mean, and, and it's not because God was so mad in the garden that they ate from that tree. He's very gentle with it. He just knows we're made in his image to, to conform to his standard and that's life and everything else is death. It's just going to lead to death and that's going to be the consequence of it. Um, but now, when Jesus dies in our place, then we can be free from that. And we've died with him, and so we're free from it. And that's why this question doesn't make any sense to Paul. He's like, you've died to sin. What do you mean keep sinning? Continue in sin? This doesn't make any sense at all. Last week, Ken talked about how Adam represents us, and he talked about, this was really good, like federal headship and spiritual connection and example. And and Ken talked about sports teams, which is really good for Ken, because Ken's never cheered for a sports team in his entire life. I would venture to guess that Ken has never watched a game of sports, but he got it, and it was really good. But Dan and I were like, oh, we totally get that. And so when you, I, about 10 years ago, I think I preached on this, and the conversation I remember having was with Brad Eckley. If anybody remembers Brad, he was a big Clemson fan, and he's like, oh, I totally get that. When you cheer for a team, you like put your emotional well-being in the hands of you know, five or 25 or 50 young guys, teenagers, 20-somethings, that if you got to know them, that you'd think these are complete morons. And it makes no sense that what they do on a field or a court or whatever, half a country away, is going to affect my emotional well-being and how I treat my wife and kids for a period of time after the game is over, you know? But, like, there's a way in which we put that in their hands and we are affected by the consequences of their actions. That was a, I thought that was a really good analogy. And, and this is like saying... Um, Jesus can lead, you can put it all in Jesus' hands. This is, this is heretical at some level that I understand, but like you can put it all in Jesus' hands and go in a completely different direction now. Like you have that option. No one likes a Fairweather fan, but you have a one-time exemption to stop following Adam and to start following Jesus because Adam is going to lose every time and it's going to lead to death no matter what you think it's going to look like and Jesus is going to win every time and it's going to lead to life no matter what you think about it and you have a choice to change it so that Jesus is the one that represents you now. You can choose, right? This would be like Eric Seal. This is your one time, this is your one chance to repent from being a UNC fan and become an NC State fan. You want to do it? Oh, this is a wise choice because they all lead to death, right? All the idols that we put in that bucket, they all lead to death. 
Like, and, and this leads to life. And we get a chance, um, we get a chance to change it and to, to let him dictate what happens. We're going to be represented one way or the other by Adam or by Jesus. And in, like, if you've chosen Jesus, you've chosen Jesus and you've died to sin, and you've been raised to new life in Christ. And so Paul is saying, why would you ever want to go back to the hell that it was following Adam? Like, that is the dumbest question ever, right? You have this, and because he died, we died. And we're free not just because the penalty is paid, but because the power of sin, it doesn't have, it's been broken, and it doesn't have power over us anymore. Black and white, something has happened for us that maybe we don't understand it completely but paul's saying it's unbelievable what's happened we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in the newness of life for if we've been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his and this is the picture of baptism that you go under that water because you have died with Christ and you come out of it because you've been raised to new life in Christ. And if you've accepted what Christ has done for you, like you should get baptized. And the language we use in that is the, the line from 2 Corinthians if any man be in Christ, boom, new creation. Because that's what the Bible says happened. Problem is, we don't quite always feel like a new creation, we don't always feel quite dead to sin. Like there's this black and white part. It's deeper than we get, but there's this gray part that we don't know what to do about. And so he moves on and says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. We know. We know. He's just told us. He's explained this to us. We know. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's next week's message. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? We know this to be true. Like in our underlying experience, we must now consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. One of the things I thought about this is that sin had, had more power over us than we knew before Christ. Like, we didn't feel like we were dead in our sins. We didn't feel like we were slaves to it, but we were. And sin has less power of us than we think it does now that we're in Christ. But that can seem like it changes slowly. Gray. We may not feel like it, but this is what's happened and what is happening. And so when he says consider yourselves, consider is like a, it's, a, it's an accounting term, reckon yourselves. It's used 19 times in the book of Romans where Jesus, I think at the Last Supper, said he was numbered among the transgressors. Like that's, it's like a, it, I mean, it's you think about it this way. You consider yourself that. And um, I would say like the black and white and the gray, you do what you think. Like we all think there are some things that are black and white and it affects the gray and what we do. Um, in all sorts of ways, and so you have to start with, like, what you're thinking. That affects how you feel and then, like, what you do. So, I don't know. Have you ever seen one of those articles about how standards of beauty have changed over centuries? Like, that's what we think, and that affects how we feel, and it affects what we do. Um, this, we've become increasingly, like, relativistic as a culture because fewer and fewer people believe that God is the standard of good, and, like, that's their choice, you know, 
But if you don't believe that there's, if you believe like God isn't there and it's just, it's just totally naturalistic evolution, we came from, um, you know, from nothing, then there's no reason to believe in good and bad and, and sin and really human rights. Um, I was talking to a guy here a few years ago who was a um, single guy trying to, you know, date, and he ended up on a date with a woman that we ended up calling Slug Girl because she was like, well, we're no different than slugs. And, you know, he's like, check, please. Uh, it just wasn't going to work, you know, but just like your worldview affects that. And that's a logical worldview if God doesn't exist. And people don't live within the logic, but that's what they believe. And so it's eventually going to come out one way or another. With sex as an example of that, like if you think sex is an appetite, I remember them saying about Bill Clinton that he's like an alpha, and so you can't expect him to be monogamous. And that's a natural extension of a worldview. But if you believe that sex, if two of you think it's an appetite, you're going to satisfy an appetite. If you believe that sex is um, a gift from God and like a picture of God's love for his people and ultimately a, a demonstration of the gospel you know, to be shared between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, you're going to treat it with kid gloves because you believe, you know something different about it. You believe something different about it. And so what you think affects what you do. The black and white affects the gray. And you may not do it perfectly, but it's going to influence it. And it may take a while for the gray to catch up with the black and white. So I read that there's a bunch of stories like this, but there's a guy named Hiru Onada who was a Japanese soldier, fought in World War II, and then lived in the Philippine jungles for 29 years at war with everybody because he didn't believe the war had ended. So they, there were like four of them. One of them was like, I'm done with this. Went down just as he couldn't live in the jungle anymore. One of them died. I can't remember what happened to the other one. This guy made it for 29 years. After 29 years, a young Japanese guy, Norio Suzuki, is traveling around the world looking for Lieutenant Onada, a panda bear, and the abominable snowman in that order. This is a weird guy. And so he goes into the jungles, and he finds Onada, and Onada is like, this hippie boy, Suzuki, came to listen to the feelings of an old Japanese soldier and asked me why I wouldn't come out. And he said, I refused to surrender because I didn't get orders from a superior officer telling me to surrender. So Suzuki goes back to Japan, finds his commanding officer, Yoshimi Taniguchi, who had become a bookseller, and Taniguchi, 29 years later, goes to this island in the Philippines, meets with Onada, like he had told him, whatever happens, we'll come back for you, just a little late, you know? And gave him written orders to surrender, and he surrendered. His black and white reality had changed 29 years previous, but his gray stayed at war for 29 years. His status had changed, but he acted like his status hadn't changed. They even dropped leaflets on him, to like, but he didn't believe them. And I wonder if like what Paul's telling us is a little bit like those leaflets saying, no, 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 it's changed, and it's a matter of us believing him. I thought about this too, where your reality has a hard time getting up. Have you ever been fired? Like, you can get fired, but, but it can take a while for that to catch up, the fact that you've been fired. Over the years, I've realized, especially living here where there's a lot of corporations that fire lots of people at once, you know? And so some companies would be like, they go in or they announce to their company, hey, in a couple weeks, um, we're going to fire like a quarter of you. All right, have a good day. Get to work. And nobody does anything until they actually fire somebody. Has anybody ever been in a company that did that type of thing? And so, um, and so no, but then other companies will be like, well, we can't do that, so we'll just not let them give them any notice. There was a guy here, he worked for a video game company, walk, walked in on a, on a Friday morning and walked, was walked out by security an hour later because there's proprietary stuff with video games. They're super secretive about those video games. 
And like, just like that, he was fired. So you can not have a job, but like, it takes a while for the reality to catch up of what that means, because nobody knows how much their identity is wrapped up in their job until someone takes it away from them. And I've seen that like time and again um, here. Relationships are like this, you know, where people can change, but it can take a while for us to catch up to it. Um, how many of you would say, this, I'm going to start with a weird place, but then I think it's going to help it make sense. How many would say you have a relationship with your car in some way, shape, or form? Okay, so, so I, I'm driving a, uh, an Accord. When Michael got his driver's license a few years ago, we, we just needed another car. And so I found this, got a, got a great deal on it, low miles Accord, ride forever. And after a few weeks, I realized it has this thing where when it's going between first gear and second gear, it's pretty hard shift and then when it gets to third gear it does this little boom 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 thing that it's not supposed to do so i took it to a transmission guy he's like nope it's fine took it to my mechanic he's like i don't know what you're talking about but for four years i've been driving around with this thing doing this and it drives me a little bit crazy and i've thought a bunch of times about getting rid of my ending my relationship with my car and starting a relationship with a new car and but then my check engine light's been on i decided to change the um the catalytic converter because that was the check engine light thing. And I changed, and I couldn't do that, actually. Brandon was going to have to help me grind off some bolts because I got so close, but didn't. And, but I changed the oxygen sensor because they said you're supposed to do that when you do that. And the check engine light went off, which was a real bonus for me. But also, like, this car started driving smooth. Like, the oxygen sensor was the problem the whole time. I just didn't know it. But I've been driving that car around the last week. And you know what I think it's going to do every time I shift into third gear? Every time, I think it's going to just, it's just playing with me, and it's going to go back to like, boom, boom, boom. Like, it takes a while to believe that change has actually happened, and it's a car. So imagine with a person that you're in a relationship with for a long period of time, say a spouse, or a child, or a parent, or a church friend, you know what I mean? Where something's been low-key driving you a little bit crazy, and they change, but it takes a while for the black and white reality to catch up to the gray. Like, I think that's the type of stuff that he's talking about. Your black, and, your black and white reality with sin changes the moment you accept what Christ has done for you. Sin does not reign over you anymore if you are in Christ. It is not in charge of you. But you might still act like it does. And it takes a while for that to catch up. And I don't know what sins you struggle with the most. You know? Um, I know what mine are. <laughs> Fear and unbelief are in that category. Envy's in that category. Lust is probably in that category. I'm dead to those sins. Those sins do not reign over me. And I've noticed that over time, but not as fast as I want to, you know. But they're dead. My problem is I underestimated the power they had over me before Christ, and I overestimate the power they have in me now. And he says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness. This is next week's message, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. Sin will have no dominion over us because we're not under law, but under grace. Let me take um, one last shot at this, and I'm almost done, and... Uh, it's sin reigning over us. What happened in the garden, like with, in that perfect relationship with God, in his image, conforming to who he is, we knew 
he had said, he created us and said, you are very good. We knew, that, we knew that we were very good. That echoes in our souls. We want to know that we're good. And we, not, we want to know that we're loved. And um, Satan convinced like, them that God does, he tempted them with God doesn't really love you. He loves himself and he's trying to control you. And so you should just go out on your own. And they went on their own and they were no longer good. They were bad. But we need those things. We need to know that we're good and we're loved. And so we're going to go someplace else to get them. And so we went everywhere, all over the world, literally, to get them, and nothing would satisfy. In Christ, we know we have the answer to those two questions. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's the, the greatest act of sacrifice in history was the God who created the universe sending his innocent son to die in our place because he loves us. And we know we're good not because of our actions. We're good because the only righteous one gave us his righteousness and took our unrighteousness and it got him on the cross. And so now we have the righteousness of Christ, which is why we're not under law, because we have the righteousness of Christ, because he perfectly fulfilled the law. So we know those things, and in that, we are free. We don't need something. We don't need to sin. We don't need idolatry. We don't need something else to tell us who we are, because we know all that in Christ again. And in that, that's a way in that we are free from sin and from the power of sin because our identity has changed with the gospel. And Paul has been telling us the last few chapters, God shows his love for us that in, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like, that's how deep his love is for us. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Much more what Jesus has done for us. The law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He loves you, and he has taken care of the problem. Though It is black and white. It is done. If you receive what Christ, if you have not done that, do that today. If you receive what Christ has done for you, and say, oh, God needed you. I needed you to do this for me, and so thank you, and I am accepting what you have done on my behalf. You are in Christ, and it has changed. And what reigns in your heart now is not sin, but it is the love of God through the grace of Jesus for you. And that will change everything about you. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm going to just fast forward to the end of this section in chapter 8. In this verse that Paul writes, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And whatever, I'm, this is a verse that when I was a teenager and I first became a Christian, I saw this verse and I needed it so bad and I wrote it down. I probably still have it in a box in my bedroom someplace. Like I put it at my wallet. For years I had that verse because I couldn't believe it and I needed to know that nothing would separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the most powerful force in the universe and it will change everything about you. And so whatever sins you're weighed down with, man, you should repent and confess your sins or repent. He's righteous and just and cleanses from our... He's done that. He's done that. Those sins can't separate you from the love of Christ because Jesus and what he did is more powerful than any sin that you've committed and you are in Christ. And that black and white reality of what he's done for us is the thing that is going to change us. We're going to take communion in just a second here and we invite you if you've received what Christ has done for you to come up and 
um, to remember what he's done for you, maybe in a new way that somehow we've participated in this with him. We have died with Christ and we've been raised to new life. But take a minute to thank him, to let it sink in at a new level, um, the reality of what he's done for us. Father, thank you for these words and for the depth of them. I pray that they would impact us in new ways, Lord, that we would come to embrace the reality that you died for us, but we died with you. And so sin has no dominion over us. But your love through the grace of Jesus reigns in our hearts, Lord. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.